It was a joy conversing with Dr. Ruby. He is a knowledgeable, caring physician whose life is imbued by osteopathy. He shared with us in this episode how he treats chronic pain patients, as well as stories about some of the greats in the osteopathic world, such as Ed Stiles, Phil Greenman, and Viola Fryman. I do apologize for the audio in this episode. My internet was on overload, but hope that you're still able to enjoy it and take away some osteopathic pearls. Welcome to episode 87 of the Osteopathic Manipulative Podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Green, a third-year osteopathic neuromuscular medicine resident at Michigan State University. Our guest is a graduate from the College of Osteopathic Medicine and Surgery in Iowa. He interned at the Osteopathic Hospital of Maine in Portland, Maine. He has been a private practitioner, a faculty of pre-doctoral education at the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine and chair of the OMM department at State University. He was professor and chair of the Department of Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine and Osteopathic Medicine at the Western University of Health Sciences College of Osteopathic Medicine in Pomona, California, from 1999 to 2009. He retired from this position, but continues his work at Western as a professor and consultant to the department of NMM-OMM. In this capacity, he is involved with teaching, research, curriculum analysis, and the development and mentoring of faculty and pre-doctoral OMM fellows. Dr. Ruby is certified in NMM-OMM and in family practice, is a fellow of the American Academy of Osteopathy. He was president of the AAO from 1990 to 1991. He is the recipient of the Andrew Taylor Still Medallion of Honor and the AAO's Distinguished Fellow Award. He has taught osteopathic techniques for many years, both nationally and internationally. He also serves as a consultant and assistant director of CN at the Osteopathic Center of San Diego. Dr. Ruby is an avid jazz musician enthusiast and has performed professionally as a jazz He lives in California with his wife, Karen, and Gemma and Squeaky, the world's most helpful cats. Dr. Ruby, thank you for being with us tonight and being willing to share your, your career story. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation and... Uh... I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I start out the podcast with an unfair question. And that question is, if you had to describe yourself to the audience in <clears throat> a sentence or two, how, how would you do that? <laughs> well, I looked at that question quite a long time. Um, and I'm, I'm more accustomed to interviewing people and asking them questions like that. So uh, it's interesting to have the tables <laughs> turned on you. Yeah, but, I like um, being on this side of the table. <laughs> I, uh, well, I think in the end, I would say that um, I like to think of myself as a nice guy, um, uh, an organized, motivated kind of person. Um, I'm an on-time kind of person. Um, I'm pretty passionate about my work. And uh, when... Um, People ask me what I do. I, I do tell them I'm an osteopathic physician, but um, 
I tell them that I think what I like to do is help people become the best people they can be. So, so I think that's my summary in the end. Do you follow up question? Do you see your osteopathic practice then as that tool to help people, you know, be their best self? Yes, it's, it's, uh, I, you know, I think it's part of the job of a physician in that sense. And I've, I learned very early on in practice that uh, it's one thing to, to be a physician and uh, have as much medical knowledge as you can gather around yourself. But in the actual practice with patients, there are some additional things that are uh, helpful if you have them or can develop them. One of them is communication skills and the other one is uh, motivational skills. You know, in, in the schools now, they teach the students what they call motivational interviewing. But I think of it as a kind of thing that we've always been doing with patients is to motivate them to usually to be compliant with medications and treatments and things. But I like to extend that to try and get people motivated about their lives and uh, what's important to them and connect their health to it and uh, help them see how their good health helps them to achieve all their other goals in life. So I think it's a it's a um, I wouldn't call it a complex process, but it's a busier process than just making a diagnosis and prescribing a treatment. So, you know, we talk about the mind, body and spirit. Do you yourself when you are motivating people to do things that they love and that they're excited about or that gives them hope do you in your mind you kind of categorize that as the the spirit part of that triad of the mind it's, it's body part of that yeah yeah it is, it is part of that i think that uh <clears throat> you know historically it, it seems in the profession that over time as the profession has grown in many directions we seem to have um, lost sight of the spirit part of the body, mind, and spirit uh, equation of osteopathic medicine. And so I think uh, there's a need to to uh, help restore that and, and re return it, I guess, if you want to call it that. Uh, I've seen other articles in recent years, too, uh, and, and other experiences. I worked in, I practiced in San Diego for a while years ago, and I worked with an MD who was a family doctor and uh, practice what he described as holistic medicine and you know just like sort of our um, sort of access or entry to the patient is our structural exam and our hands-on approach um, his sort of entry to the patient was acupuncture he was an extremely well-trained uh, acupuncture physician and that was sort of the heart of his approach to patients and um, he used to talk about um us living in an age where he felt that people uh, suffered from what in, in his world they called spirit disease, you know? So people had illnesses, conditions, ailments that we could name and describe and treat, but there was a, a spirit end to it. So in his own way, he had kind of an osteopathic thought about the approach to patients. So I've seen other things like that too. Uh, in literature in recent years that uh, physicians are getting this idea that um, there's there's more to it than just the physical exam and the diagnosis and treatment. There's a, there, you know, the, there's a real patient oriented kind of thing. And there's a real um, biopsychosocial spiritual aspect to, to practice that needs to be considered. 
Yeah. You know, we, we had an exercise prescription course, which you have partaken in or taught when you were at Michigan mm-hmm. State University yes. mm-hmm. back in the day. We just had that course over the week. Stefano was talking about how the limbic system, one of those emotional centers, along with the amygdala of our uh, system, oftentimes gets involved in our chronic pain patients. Yes. Mm -hmm. Importance of being able to tease out, you know, what be, what may be the main driver of this person's or the chief complaint. Is it more the biomechanical model or is it really the, maybe that limbic system, the the spirit component? Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. if, if you if you just even start with the, uh, the the physiology or the pathophysiology of pain, you know you can open up textbooks and look at the the the, the afferent and efferent pathways that go up, you know, from the periphery into the central nervous system, and you know eventually tertiary connections, as they might call them, are are going to those centers, you know, in the limbic system and other centers in the brain. So at some point these these biopsychosocial and emotional aspects of the person um, are part of the pathway <laughs> you know so they're bound to get to get involved and uh, and they become part of their reaction uh, just like they have efferent signals going to whatever part of the body has the pain or has been injured or whatever the the, the cause or the situation is then they're their, their own thinking, their own mindset, their own cultural and other influences and spiritual influences can get involved in how they react to and how they interpret what's going on with themselves. So it becomes an important issue. Um, that, yeah, absolutely. I like that. It can be, it can be very simple sometimes. Um, I've had, an, I've, I've treated a lot of patients with chronic pain and I've had some who have had pain, you know, for ongoing months and, and years. And um, I know one one experience I had some number of times, I wish I'd written down enough of it so that I could remember how many times with people with chronic pain who uh, start to get better, uh, particularly with uh, manipulative treatment and where other treatments have, have not helped them very much. And, and, uh, and then there, but they still have something that's holding them back. And, um, I had an experience with a patient one time who came in and she was doing pretty well for some months that I was treating her. And she came in one time and she had a flare up of her pain and she was practically in tears. And she was uh, saying, gee, you know, I'm just so, I thought I was doing better. And now I, suddenly I feel worse. And, you know, over the weekend, I couldn't, I couldn't play with my grandchild. I couldn't pick him up. I was, you know, and, uh, she said, I was, so I talked with her and she said, well, I was just so afraid. I, did, I didn't feel good. The pain bothered me. And I was afraid I was going to, you know, hurt myself or something. And I, so I explained the idea of chronic pain to her again, at least at that time. I said, you know, we know that people have an injury or something that happens to them and they have pain. And then, but, you know, weeks and months and even years after we know that you know, the, the, the body's tissues and joints and anything that was injured are, are healed, the pain may still continue. We don't understand it, but people still have pain. And, uh, um, and I said to her, I said, well, you know, I, I learned this from my partner that I was working with at the time. He, 
I said, well, does it bother you if you try to do these things? And she said, well, yes. And I said, well, does your pain bother you if you're not trying to do some of these things? And she said, well, yeah. So I said, well, you know, you can't actually, you, you'd have to get a whole new injury, you know, to, to the, 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 technically your tissues are healed. We know that the pain is still there. Um, so I said, your comment about uh, hurting yourself is, you know, you'd, you'd have to do something very overly strenuous or something to really re-injure yourself. But but the old thing, no. And um, she said, well, you know, that's interesting. She said, because um, I was just afraid I was going to hurt myself. She said, the pain I can handle, but I was afraid I was going to hurt myself. You know? I said, no. I said, you need to, I said, if it bothers you and you want to pick up your grandchild and play with him for a while anyway, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I said, I said, you know that if I give you a treatment, you feel better. So call me up and I'll give you a treatment if it's a problem. And I can't tell you how many patients I had who were so relieved to find out that it was okay for them to push themselves a little bit, that they were not actually going to um, greatly hurt themselves again. And then they started getting better again. You know, they went to a higher level. Um, what was happening over time is they just became sedentary with their pain. You know, they it, it hurts, so they stopped doing things. And uh, the more you stop doing things, the more out of shape you get. You know, so... So it, it's 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 not really a psychotherapeutic breakthrough, but it's part of the body, mind, and spirit. And if you can get people to understand the nature of what's going on, um, it can be a great relief to them, and they can make progress. So I had a lot of experiences like that with patients. Yeah, I did a mind-body rotation with Governor and Dr. Jesse Guasco, and they talked about these chronic pain patients as just like you said, fearful of what may happen, but also fear of just living in their body day to day and not having, not having a good understanding of what may be generating the pain and having mm -hmm. gone through years and years of imaging and rhizotomies mm -hmm. and fusions and laminectomies. And oh, yeah, testing. sure. I've just mm -hmm. gone through all this work up and nothing has helped their pain and nobody can really figure out what it is. And they're talking yeah. about these chronic pain patients that don't have anything that we can find structurally wrong with them. Sometimes mm -hmm. is the fear, the fear factor. Um, it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the doctor that I worked with or I, he and I had a, OMM consultation and treatment service at the hospital in Portland, Maine. Um, and um, he was a pretty interesting character. His name was Bill Wyatt. Uh, a lot of people listening to your podcast might might know him. Um, and uh, patients would, we'd, we'd get a lot of chronic pain patients. Sometimes they had pain for several years or more and been to a lot of doctors. And, and uh, sometimes they would say, you know, the last couple of doctors that I saw told me it was all in my head, you know, it was just like, there's nothing wrong with me anymore, you know, so to speak. Well, there's nothing physically wrong, you know, with you at this point. And, and um, number one, the patients looked at him and said, well, doctor, is it, is it in my head? Am I crazy? You know, and my partner looked at him and said, of course you're crazy. He said, I said, I think you're crazy as all get out, you know, but he said, 
that crazy doesn't cause pain. He said, that's <laughs> so forget that. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and it kind of put the patient at ease after we had a good laugh about it. And, but, but what he was trying to say, you know, we were trying to tell the patients is we, we, we hope we get you in that. Uh, yes, doctors and including us, we cannot find a physical problem with you anymore three or four years after your injury. Um, but we do know that the pain is real and it continues in some patients and, and, and none of the doctors on earth understand it totally, but there's things that we can do for it. And maybe what we do will help you where others haven't. And sometimes we were, you know, fairly successful with that. So, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, you mentioned it, the fear factor. And, um, I was impressed early on with just what seemed to me the straightforward way of trying to get the patient to understand just that about their pain that that it that it was real um no there's nothing physically wrong with you but we do know that the pain after an injury can get into a bad cycle and it and um you you can feel that pain and it is there and and it's a can be a difficult thing to break and just the patient's understanding that can make a big difference to them. Like I say, I had some number of patients who would say, okay, well, all right. I said, I just thought I was hurting myself. You know, he said, the pain I can tolerate, you know, I can go back to work. I can go in the yard. I can work with the pain. I just thought I was hurting myself. I was afraid to move, you know, and now they know they don't have to do that, you know, and right. um, sometimes they make great progress after that. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also illustrates the point of the power of words coming from a, to a patient. You know, when you give them the reassurance, yeah. you know, we've done a very extensive workup or your injury happened years ago. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to say that the pain is not real. The pain is real. But yeah. I want to give you some reasons that um, I think you're going to be okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, I had yeah. to do reassurance in some, some number of ways sometimes with people. First of all, when the patient finally gets a doctor like yourself that, that, that will listen to that and give them an explanation this way, that's reassuring. And it's more than reassuring because it can be a breakthrough for them sometimes. Um, sometimes I would have that conversation with patients and I would say, look, if you go out and want to try and exercise and it starts to bother you, and you say, you know, the heck with this, I'm going to exercise 10 or 15 minutes more anyway, I'd say, go ahead, it's fine, you know. Um, and and sometimes they get very scared of that, and they'd say, well, what if this happens? What if I get more pain? What if I, and <clears throat> one of the things I would say to patients, I'd say, well, you know that if you, if I treat you, you feel better. You're, you know, we're, we're making progress, and you're you're moving along, and your pain gets better. You know that if I give you a treatment, you walk out of here feeling pretty comfortable. And they said, yes. So I said, well, if you go out and do that and you're you're that much uncomfortable the next day, I said, you call me. And I said, I told them, I said, I guarantee you that I will see you that day. You know, you can come in during lunchtime or at the end of the day or whatever. I'll stay here till 10 o'clock at night till you can get here. But I guarantee you, I will not let you go through that day without getting a treatment if that's the problem. And um, I never had anybody call me, you know, <laughs> so really, just, just, the re just the reassurance that they knew that if they could 
I'd say, you know, if the pain flares up, don't let it get to you. I said, it's you haven't done this for a long time. You haven't moved that that hard. Uh, you you have to get a whole new injury. You're not going to hurt yourself. Um, and <clears throat> just that reassurance was enough. It's you know, my sort of joke is it's kind of like the story about the guy who uh, can't sleep at night and he calls his doctor and the doctor gives him a prescription of sleeping pills and he takes the pill home and pills home and he puts them on the nightstand next to the bed and then uh, he never takes them, you know, because as, as long as he has the pills there, he, he's sleeping just fine. You know? So so they have this reassurance. And I told him, I said, you know, if you if you get up the next day and you're really that uncomfortable, call me and I, I, I promise you I will see you and treat you that day. I won't make you wait, you know, a week or two or whatever, like, um, and, but it just, it worked okay. I had more people come back for their usual visit and say, boy, you know, you were right. You know, I, I was sore, but it kind of went away and now I can do more. I feel like, you know, I made it progress, you know? So, um, so it's, it's part of that mind, body, spirit thing, you know, it's, it's part of their, um, spirit letdown that they've been going through and they, they need a boost, you know? So I can't believe that nobody like took you up, you know, and, and saw yeah, you. I mean, it wasn't a whole lot of patients, but I never, never got a call from anybody that said, okay, wise guy, I need to come in and see you, you know? <laughs> didn't, didn't happen. You never got the midnight <laughs> so. phone call. Hey, Dr. Ruby, my bag is just <laughs> no. in practice. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was taking the chance, but it worked. funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're on this top topic, Dr. Ruby, you know, you've had a long career doing many playing as an educator. Yeah. What, what are some of the, your career or, what advice, messages, clinical pearls do you want to share with us that you and that have been very, you know, strong principles that that you've held on to or have learned throughout your medical career? Okay. Well, um, I threw you a curveball. Wow. Oh, no, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> one, one clinical pearl I would say to students and anybody is uh, be aware of curveballs in your career. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they, they come along periodically. Um, I, I think the way I would start that is, is that I would suggest um, <clears throat> you, you had some, some questions about, you know, um, how, how I might've chosen medicine and osteopathic school yeah. and that type of thing. And I think that your question that you just asked me now is kind of interwoven with that, with me. Absolutely. Uh, so, so maybe if I go through that, it'll, it'll hit on it. Uh, because I, I, I start out saying that, that uh, I, <clears throat> I don't see myself as having a um, earth shadowing kind of story to tell about how I got on into osteopathic medicine. Uh, compared to other DOs that I know and plenty of students that I've met who, you know, people who had to come here from uh, other countries and, and, and uh, get away from poverty and war and, you know, come to a new country and, and learn a new language and make a new life for themselves and, or people who have suffered uh, or their families suffered and looking for medical care and 
um, anyway, found their way to osteopathic medicine. Um, the only thing I have in common with a lot of people was back when I was a student, I, you know, I, I didn't know anything about osteopathic medicine, like, like a lot of pre-med students sometimes. And, uh, I had gotten interested in medicine when I was in college. Uh, some of my classmates that I hung around with were pre-med ma majors. And over time, I got more interested in the idea of medicine. I was a psychology major. And so I thought more about medicine rather than psychology and decided that I would go for medical school. And I went to <clears throat> the library at my college to look at uh, medical school catalogs. They had a whole room over there full of medical school and graduate school catalogs. And, I, and it was time to apply to school. And so I started looking at medical school catalogs to look for medical schools to apply to. And while I was there on the shelf, right below these catalogs, there was this shelf with a small grouping of books. Um, and the binders said osteopathic something or other on them. And I thought, what the heck is this stuff? So I started looking at these catalogs and these were from osteopathic schools and, and uh, I'm really dating myself now, but the time when I was applying to school, there were only six DO schools at the time. So, so the, the, the grouping of catalogs wasn't very big there. <laughs> and, um, but the first thing I noticed in every catalog was the osteopathic philosophy, you know, and I read that very clearly in each of these DO catalogs. And as I was read, reading that, I was thinking that here I was, I was, you know, 20 year old college student. And I'm thinking like, well, you know, I'm reading this osteopathic philosophy and I'm, I kept thinking, geez, you know, does, isn't this like what a doctor is supposed to be like? <laughs> you know, doesn't this describe what a physician is supposed to be doing and, and how they should be thinking? <clears throat> and I went back to some of the allopathic school catalogs and started looking through them again. And oddly enough, I couldn't find anything like that in those catalogs. Um, and uh, there were two DOs in the, in, the, in, the, in the community, in the town where I was going to college. And so I, I called each one of them up and just out of the blue introduced myself and explained I was interested in going to medical school and I wanted to find out more about this osteopathic medicine. And <clears throat> And uh, each one of them gave me the same response. They set up a day for me to come and visit them at their office. And so I did that. And I found out that they, they knew each other, but they had their own practices in the town. Um, and they were, you know, family doctors. <clears throat> and they both gave me the same kind of greeting. I spent the day with them. Um, and they seemed so energetic and so happy about what they were doing. Um, you know, they wanted to show me the x-rays on their patients. They wanted me to see this patient with them. They wanted to show me what they were doing. And, they, and uh, I, had a, I had a girlfriend at the time who had three brothers that were uh, physicians and uh, they, were, they were MDs. And uh, I, don't, I hate to say that though, because I, no, I have no issue to pick with any other profession, but that's just the, 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 the situation at the time. And oddly enough with them, they were very... Um, they were very enthusiastic and encouraging about me wanting to go into medicine, but then they would get this sort of look in their eyes and they would say, wow, that's really great, but boy, it's, you know, it's pretty tough. It's a long road. It's a lot, a lot of work. And it's, you know, I thought, well, I've never been to medical school, but I'm pretty sure it's a lot of work, <laughs> you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. 
And I wouldn't say it's the major influence, but I think I thought about it quite a bit. And I thought, if I were going to be a physician and I were going to get up and go to work every day for 25, 30, 40, 50 years or whatever that might be, how do I want to go to work? Do I want to go to work like those two DOs I met who said, hey, look at this x-ray, look at this guy, come see this with me, you know? Or do I want to kind of go to work like these other guys say, boy, this is great being a doctor, but boy, this is a long road. It's a lot of work, uh, you know? <laughs> so I kind of chose the first option. <laughs> You know? <laughs> and uh, that kind of influenced me. And it really swayed me. I didn't I didn't apply to allopathic schools. I applied to some of the DO schools and um, well, you know, it's kind of history. So that's where that started. Um, I, I didn't get <clears throat> tons of OPMP training in school. We had an OPMP course, but at the time, um, they, you know, Dr. Mitchell Sr. was just beginning to teach muscle energy to some physicians. Dr. Larry Jones was just beginning to give uh, workshops to physicians in his office on his new counter-strain technique. Um, myofascial release was something that people heard of, but nobody said anything about it. And cranial was not to be spoken of back then. Everybody thought it was just kind of voodoo, you know. And uh, so none of these things were, were taught in the school. In my first two years of school, I learned high velocity. Literally, that's what I learned, you know. Um, and um, but one of the uh, moving forward somewhere, one of the things that happened to me when I was an intern was I was an intern there in Portland, Maine, and that was the same year that Dr. Ed Stiles uh, was at a hospital up in Waterville, which was about an hour and a half or so north of Portland. And he was doing this uh, interesting sounding uh, hospital-based OMM uh, consultation and treatment service. And I'd heard of him, but I'd never met him. I heard that he was doing a muscle energy technique. Um, I've heard of, I heard of that, but I'd never seen it. Um, but I had an, uh, you know, an elective month and I decided that I was gonna take that month and go up to Waterville and um, do a rotation with him that month. And so um, the first thing that happened, um, now, now my story is starting to get long, but I hope it'll be interesting, Ben. You can <laughs> feel free to interrupt me at any time. But um, I started on my first day with Dr. Stiles and he had an office in the hospital, you know, where his outpatients came in to be seen. And then between outpatients and then, or in the afternoon, he would go into the hospital, you know, down the hallway and do his inpatient consultations and treatments. And he was doing muscle energy as most you and I and most students would recognize it as being taught. Um, but I'd never seen it. And uh, I watched him treat the first couple of patients with his isometric muscle energy stuff. And I was thinking like, uh, I seriously was thinking like, you know, how am I going to get out of this? <laughs> I said, I said I have to come up with some kind of a polite excuse to let him know that I got a phone call and I have to go back down to Portland and cover for somebody and I, you know, something like that. Cause I'm thinking like, what is he doing? You know, it's like, you know, all I knew was, all I knew was high velocity. And I kept thinking like, well, you know, when's he going to do a treatment? <laughs> you know, this muscle energy, you know, push against me here and that. And I'm thinking like, what is this? Well, about that time, the third or fourth patient for third or fourth patient came in and, um, it was a it was a, a tall six foot five kind of guy and it was 
big, you know, not not uh, obese, but big, built like a NFL linebacker, you know, muscular looking guy. And he came walking in and you could see when he walked through the door from his face that he was uncomfortable um, and looked depressed. He had a chart that was about five inches thick um, and he walked very stiffly and he had this big back brace on. <clears throat> and <clears throat> he sat down on the treatment table and he looked at Ed Stiles and he said, Dr. Stiles, he said, I want to tell you that before you start, he said, you are number doctor number 33, <laughs> you know? Said, okay. <laughs> well, the very short history of this guy was he, he worked for the phone company and he was a linesman, I guess they might call it. He climbed up and down telephone poles with those, um, like you see in the old movies, they wore these sort of spike things on their shoes, you know, that they dug mm -hmm. into the pole with and climbed up and down. And three years prior to this visit, he was coming down a telephone pole and the, the, the uh, harness that he wore on the, the uh, broke or it slipped or something, and he slid down the pole. And mm. when he got a couple of feet from the ground, one spike caught, and then he went backwards, you know, down onto the ground. And he wrenched his back, um, and he's had this back pain ever since. And he's been literally to 32 other doctors and clinics and places and got all these x-rays and other things, and nobody can figure out what to do with him. So, and he has a this back brace, and he had a prescription for Valium, and he told Dr. Stiles, he said, I don't, I don't take the Valium because if I take a Valium, I, I take a Valium and I fall asleep and I wake up 24 hours later and I don't remember anything. And he said, so talk about the spirit part of medicine. He said, I don't like the idea of not knowing where 24 hours went. <laughs> you know? And he said, I'd rather have the pain. You know? So he said, I don't take the Valium. So Dr. Stiles started treating him and I thought, well, okay, this is going to be really good. This guy hasn't done a treatment all day. What's he going to do with this guy? And uh, <laughs> so he spent about 45 minutes working on him with all this muscle energy stuff. And then he kept commenting about how tight the guy's muscles were. And so when he got done, he said, look, he said, um, he said, I would like to propose something to you because the man was very congenial and, and he was very cooperative, but he's, he seemed to have a, a sense about him that said, well, you know, my wife or somebody heard about you and I made this appointment. So I'm here and you're doctor number 33 and okay, go for it. And, you know, when you're done, everybody would be happy that I came here and then maybe I can go home and people will, you know, leave me alone now, you know? Um, but Ed looked at him and said, well, no, he said, I think, he said, your muscles are awful tight. He said, I think I can treat you today. But he said, I'd like you to go home and I'd like you to take your Valium for a couple of days and then have you come back in maybe three days or so and see if with a little more muscle relaxation, can I, if I can get more done. But he said, I'm not sure. But he said, I think I might be able to help you. So at that point, I was thinking like, okay, well, all right, I can stay here for that because I just don't see what he's going to do with this guy. I can't you know, understand what he's going to happen, what's going to happen here. So about three days later, the guy came back and I can tell you when he walked in that time, first of all, his face looked entirely different. It was, you know, it didn't look like a depressed face. It didn't look like a guy in pain. Um, he was walking smoothly. He sat down on the table and when he took his shirt off, there was no back brace. And he said to Dr. Stiles, he said, Dr. Stiles, 
He said, before you start, he said, I have to tell you, I'm sorry, but I didn't take the Valium like you asked me to do. And Ed was thinking, oh, gee, well, why not? And the guy said, well, he said, I, like I told you, I don't like to take it because I just, you know, I, I go, I wake up, I don't remember what happened the last, you know, so many hours after I take it. And uh, he said, besides, he said, after I left here the last time, he said, I didn't feel like I needed it. <laughs> so I'm standing there, you know, looking at this and I'm thinking like, okay, now what do I do? I, said, I don't understand this. In, in my mind, this doctor has not done a treatment <laughs> that I understand, but I see this guy right in front of my very eyes and he is 95% better from this like non-treatment, <laughs> you know? And so without saying anything, I said to myself, okay, well, that settles it. I don't know what he's doing, but I cannot leave here without learning this. You know, it's like, I have to know how to do this. You know, So I spent that month with Dr. Stiles and he became my life changing mentor at that point. Um, so that was an interest, you know, a curious patient experience for me. Dr. Stiles yeah. introduced me to uh, things like Friet's rules. I, I'd never heard of any of this stuff in school. So, and I was, I mean, having spent, my first two years in school learning pretty much nothing but high velocity. And by the way, one of your questions said, what was, what, uh, how was it like in your first day in OMM? Well, I, I remember it kind of in a foggy way, but I remember that the first lab when I tried to do a high velocity maneuver of some kind, I don't remember which one it was with one of my classmates, it worked just like that. And I didn't realize it at the time, but apparently I, I bypassed a big learning curve that a lot of students go through, you know, trying to get good at high velocity. So um, I knew how to do high velocity up, down, and sideways, you know. So, mm -hmm. but I'd never heard of Friet's rules or any of this kind of stuff, and I'd never seen this muscle energy stuff. So I I spent that month learning about Friet's rules. I, he, he taught me one-on-one -on -one every day. He spent time with me showing me the techniques and things like that. Uh, he had me treat him a couple of times. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I was astounded to know that I could use Friet's rules to actually name my somatic dysfunctions because all I knew at that time is I could palpate paraspinal tissues and find an area that felt hypertonic or very tight or restricted. And I could put people on the table in high velocity, that area, and, you know, treat it pretty well. But using Friet's rules, and I, I can tell you my high velocity was really good, but using Friet's rules to, to localize and a little better, um, I got even better at it, <laughs> you know. So I, it, was, it was astounding to me. This is stuff that we all take for granted now because it's in all the schools pretty much and all the students experience it. So if I had a, one piece of advice right now to say to students, like, pay attention to this stuff, because to me, it was it was life changing. It was like I felt like one of those people, on, uh, you know, those people on Star Trek that live beneath the surface of the planet. You know, the, the, you know <laughs> the, the Enterprise showed up and did something and the planet opened up and I realized there was a whole other world out there. You know, he introduced me to Dr. Kim Kors work, you know. Um, I'd, I'd never seen any of that stuff in school. Um, I learned about the Academy yearbooks and all, the, and in the Academy yearbooks, there was all these interesting things. So I learned so much from him and I learned that there was a huge world and dimension of osteopathy and, and OMT beyond just a structural diagnosis and an OMT for a neck pain or a back pain or 
lift for a short leg, that this was really a part of the philosophy and the way of life of a physician, no matter what you're treating with a patient. Um, later on, I went after I finished that rotation, I was back down in Portland. <clears throat> I was the house officer one day, and it was about three o'clock in the morning on my shift. And <clears throat> I was, it had been very busy all day and most of the night. And um, I thought, well, uh, there was, and, and there were a couple of three places where we could sleep in the hospital, but everywhere I went that night, there was a, another DO in there waiting for an OB to deliver. So all the beds were gone. <laughs> you know, So I, I thought, well, I don't want to roam around in the hospital because, you know, if I'm roaming in the hospital in, in the hallways, people are just going to find work for me to do. So I was up in the hospital library. And it was like three or four o'clock in the morning. And I looked at the bookshelf <clears throat> And on the bookshelf, I found A.T. Still's autobiography and some of his other books. Well, I'd heard of A.T. Still, but I didn't know he wrote books. Never heard of that. Um, uh, read a little bit of his autobiography, and I thought, wow, this is interesting. And I found a whole book or shelf full of AAO yearbooks. And all these articles that were in these yearbooks were written by these all these DOs, most of whom were FAOs in the academy. And they were they weren't just talking about OMT techniques. They were talking about the whole patient and how they approach the whole patient. They were talking about, you know, body, mind, and spirit. They were, and so compared to what I got in school, this was just such a world-changing thing to me that taught me that uh, up until that time, I thought, well, I like this OMT stuff, and it's pretty good for musculoskeletal problems and things like that. Um, and I hear some DOs use it for other stuff. Well, all this stuff just opened my eyes and my mind to so many things that I didn't realize was the breadth and depth of osteopathic medicine. So it was really, it was really a life-changing experience that that whole period of time between me working with Ed Styles for that month and then discovering these other things. So that kind of started my journey that I guess persists today to continue to try and find out how much more can we understand about these osteopathic principles and how can we make them come alive and how can we apply them and how can we explain how we apply them so students can understand us and learn it too. Um, and how can we, and now more recently, how can we bring um, the spirit, you know, more back into this equation that seems to have kind of gotten put to the side over the years and the decades, you know? So um, at, at this point, Ben, I, I don't know. I, I don't remember what your question was, but that was my answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> That was great. I, I had a few follow-up questions for you. Absolutely. <laughs> it seems like a lot of physicians who trained in the 80s, 90s learned high velocity. Like that was mm -hmm. the technique that you learned and not much else. Is yeah. that is that true? Well, I, I, I think I think by the 80s and 90s, there was more to it. Uh, because I was, I got out of school. Now, now I'm really dating myself. I, I graduated in 1973, so um, <clears throat> there were only six schools. I don't, I don't know about the curriculums in other schools, but I know in my school, I swear for those first two years, like everybody does OP and P, I we did high velocity and probably uh, maybe a few soft tissue and articulatory things that you might describe as that, but. Um, muscle energy, counter strain, all those things were just being taught to other physicians by the founders, you know, and 
Um, so between the early to mid 70s, maybe that decade is when we started to see uh, another handful of schools appear. And a lot of these DOs who were taking the courses from uh, Dr. Uh, Mitchell and Dr. Jones and some of these other people, um, they became the department chairs in some of these new schools. So they brought these techniques into the schools and eventually they, they, they all became part of the standard curriculums, you know, so it wasn't there then. Um, but, you know, over time, all these other techniques coming in and all these other modalities are fine, but the curriculum is pretty busy. And, uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, in my mind, when I, if I try to think of it, there's a couple of things that influence maybe a change in how people view high velocity. Um, one is <clears throat> there's, a, there's certainly since the time that I was in school, there's a big change in the, in the makeup of a typical osteopathic medical school class. When I was in school, there were 114 people that started in my class. Um, there were two women and there was one African-American student. And the rest of the people in my class were all just Caucasian males. Okay? There was one woman in the second year class and that was it. And now we have, you know, as you know, uh, roughly about half and half men and women in the class. And we have uh, different um you know, body types, different sizes and shapes of people. And uh, we have different modalities. And so if some students go through and feel like they're not getting the high velocity because of maybe not the right ergonomics or the right leverage on things or something like that, then when they start learning muscle energy and the other modalities, which, uh, but not emphasize the high velocity to yourself. Um, and then students sometimes, as you know, you've probably seen classes already, students get a little scared of some of the high velocity and afraid to treat each other. And so it's easy to, it's easy to move away from that a little bit. Um, and it's a, it's a little sad because, um, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but I, you know, high velocity is a great technique. It's, it's uh, quick and it's, it really is easy if you practice it and know how to do it well. And you can get a lot of done, done for, a, for a patient in a short period of time with that technique in an office setting or something. It doesn't take very much time. Um, so uh, it's, it's uh, a little bit disappointing to see uh, students um, not paying attention to it enough because they can do other things uh, very well. And those other modalities are great. Like I say, muscle energy added a whole other dimension to my practice because somebody in acute pain was always a problem for me because high velocity wasn't always the thing that I could apply to them in an acute pain situation. But muscle energy, even though it was a direct technique with isometrics, I could ask them to match my, you know, isometric force with them and we could regulate the amount of isometric force. And even in acute pain situations, I could get people to do things with me and I could get a treatment done. And I started having some very dramatic results in the office, people coming in with acute, uh, say, a low back pain where they could hardly walk. And, you know, half hour later, they'd leave the office just fine, you know. And uh, that was the other technique I knew. So that spurred me to learn other modalities, too. So they're all great. But um, um, yeah. yeah, but so starting maybe uh, I know I was part of the group that started the school at University of New England. And. I know right from the beginning, we taught high velocity, we taught 
articulatory soft tissue, fascial release, muscle energy, counter strain. We had Dr. Jones come and help teach counter strains a number of times. And we taught um, some cranial, uh, that type of thing. So, so by the mid to late 70s, these other modalities were starting to become part of the curriculums in most of the schools, you know, so. Okay. Something else I wanted to ask you, Dr. Ruby, you mentioned that six foot five NFL linebacker body type that came in and saw Dr. Styles and Dr. Styles yeah. treated him, treated him, and it was almost miraculous, you know, how mm-hmm. how well he felt. What about times where OMT doesn't help the patient? Have you had those instances? And if so, could you share share those cases and maybe explain your theory about why maybe OMT didn't Well, um, yeah, we've all had cases like that. I mean, we like to, we, you know, you like to tell the stories of the real dramatic ones that seem very <laughs> wizardly about what happened right. to them. But the majority of patients don't always feel perfect when they get off the table. They feel better. You know, they can come in and have very a lot of pain and, and not be able to move around very well. And when I'm done treating them, you know, they get up and they're still in pain, so to speak, but they'll get up and they'll say, well, gee, doc, it still hurts, but at least I can move now. You know, I can... Well, one of the things Dr. Stiles taught me was at that point, he said, you know, this is the point for you to leave the patient alone, uh, let them go home, let the body take over for a couple of days and see them back and then treat them. You know, don't, don't over treat them today by, you know, don't, don't let the, uh, what do they say? Don't let perfect be the enemy of good, you know? <laughs> so, uh, don't don't make them perfect today because you you won't. Uh, so more patients, uh, at least I consider that a good result, and so does the patient. And I and I let them know, and I tell them, I say, well, based on my experience and what I think I know about my own skills, I know you feel uncomfortable right now. I can give you something for the discomfort, if you like, um, and you can do some things at home, you know, and 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 help calm that down. But I said, I think by the time you wake up tomorrow, you'll feel a little better and you should be continuing better. If you don't, call me up and I'll see you back sooner and, and treat you. So, again, I give them that reinforcement and that reassurance that I'm, I'm going to be there if they're not getting better. Um, but I will tell them that uh, I know you feel uncomfortable right now, but you notice that you couldn't even move when you came in and now you can at least move around, you know. And that in itself is a great deal for them because they say, well, at least now I know I can you know, get around the house and go to the bathroom and stuff like that, at least, you know, um, so that, that helps them a lot. Um, when you get people that aren't making much progress at all, then I think of, um, you know, the first, the first thing I think of, well, there's two things I think of. One is, I think, okay, well, what is the somatic dysfunction that I'm missing? You know, what's the key process here that, that I, maybe I just haven't uncovered yet. Um, and, uh, like I say, I don't, I don't expect everybody to get better in one treatment or, you know, that kind of, to start with. So, and the other thing I think of is, is there something else then wrong with the patient, you know? Um, so at this point, uh, I don't know that I would discontinue my OMT, but I might consider um, doing some diagnostic work to see if there's a visceral problem or some other, you know, uh, disease process going on with the patient, you know, that we haven't discovered yet. So that's kind of how I sort them out at that point. Yeah. Um, one thing that I'll, I'll mention, and it's really, in, in personally, in my mind, it's a very, it's a stretch, but um, 
I don't know. I don't know how many times in school I heard about malingering in patients. And I have to tell you, I've, I've seen a lot of people uh, in chronic pain who um, I don't think they were malingering. I think people have learned behaviors that's not necessarily malingering. They get a sort of a secondary gain out of things and they don't even recognize it. I can, I can only think of one or two patients in my whole career that I thought were really malingering, which I define as like they were actively plotting, you know, against the system somehow to get some kind of gain out of it, you know. Uh, so I don't, uh, I don't forget about that, but I think it's much rarer than we uh, seem to hear about in school. So I see. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, Dr. Ruby, the time is flying by. Yeah, I'm, I'm watching the counter here on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> but I really wanted to ask you another question. So sure. you are the continuing education project director at the Osteopathic Center of San Diego. First question is, is that the institute that Viola Fryman started in San Diego? Yes. Yeah, that was the... Uh, what, what Dr. Fryman had down there was uh, her clinic with, that she called the Osteopathic Center for Children. That's and right. And the, the, the uh, organization and the board of directors that actually owned the clinic and oversaw everything uh, went under the name of Osteopathy's Promise to Children. Okay. And uh, so it was part of her dream to develop a center and, and she had a kind of a three-pronged sort of vision, uh, a center where, where, and, you know, as you know, Dr. Fryman was, was noted for her treatment of children. Um, and so her, her center, her dream was to have a center where actually adults and children uh, could come and, and get osteopathic treatment. Um, second uh, part of the vision was to be able to um, do research uh, in uh, on uh, osteopathy, and the third part was to educate people on how to do these kinds of treatments in practice, so that they could treat more patients. <laughs> you know, so so uh, the the center that Dr. Fryman had down in San Diego uh, was sold, um, and they're in a newer building now in another part of San Diego, and um, so it, it's uh, the the name is called the Osteopathic Center of San Diego, but uh, it's it's under osteopathy's problem for children, and that's exactly what they're doing now. There's a group of uh, physicians there who treat patients. There's some research going on uh, there, and then we're been trying to continue to develop more continuing education. Uh, so the sort of the mainstays of the continuing education are Dr. Fryman's uh, cranial courses that we all learned from her and taught with her for some of us for some decades and. We're continuing that and developing it. And uh, we have some pediatric osteopathy courses going now and a few other uh, ones too. People can look at the website and see what's offered. And uh, during the pandemic, we've, we've generated a, a number of online uh, courses. So we, we made the decision that we would probably not try to treat OMT online like by video, but there's a lot of uh, osteopathic things that we can do online. Uh, and uh, so we're... So part of, part of me is I work with the group that we call the leadership team. And part of my um, sort of job activity is to help develop CME courses and implement them. And 
uh, grow and develop that part of the center. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's great. Can you could you share some stories about Dr. Mm -hmm. Fryman? Those of us who never had the opportunity to take a course from her or meet her in person. Oh, okay, sure. Well, um, I think I might start with, um, well, yeah, I could start a lot of places. I think maybe it's a little more personality style about her, but Dr. Fryman was, was known as a kind of a stern taskmaster, you know, when you studied with her and worked with her. Uh, she insisted on very high standards. And uh, so if you were around her and uh, uh, she was teaching you uh, and she would ask questions and uh, sometimes you'd get kind of stymied about her questions about anatomy and things. And uh, in the old uh, in the old center, they had a big conference room uh, down the hallway and the, in the, they where they had also a, a, a kind of a library there, too. And uh, she would say, she'd ask you a question in anatomy and you would fumble around and either try to give her an answer that wasn't very good or you couldn't remember. And so she would say, well, you need to go down to the conference room and uh, consult with Dr. Gray. <laughs> so, <laughs> what she's saying is, you know, so you'll find this book called Gray's Anatomy. She said, Dr. Gray is waiting for you in the conference room and we'll see you afterwards and you can answer my question. You know, so, so kind of like one of those TV doctors, you know, there's always. Uh, and I was in a course with her, one of the first courses I took with her. She would, uh, you know, aside from teaching and demonstrating and having us practice techniques every now and then, in the course, she'd sit us down and there'd only be about six of us in this course with her. And she'd have us sitting in a small group and she would quiz us with a lot of these questions. So we were pretty accustomed to <clears throat> getting asked questions that we knew we should know the answer to because we'd certainly heard about them in school, but we can't remember, you know. Um, and uh, one time she was asking us questions about cranial nerves and uh, she had this little uh, model um, of the brain and um, it had all kinds of markings on it for structures and things. And so she said, well, let's talk about the cranial nerves. And she handed the um, uh, model eventually to someone right next to her and said, well, start with this nerve. I forget which one it was. And she said, why don't you show us uh, where this, you know, oculomotor nerve comes from in the brain and stuff. Well, none of us could remember any of that stuff, you know, so we're, and the, it's getting closer to me and uh, it looks like I'm going to get the vagus nerve. And I'm thinking like, well, I've heard of that and I'm pretty sure it's in the brain somewhere, but I don't remember where, I don't know where I'm going to point, you know. <laughs> so uh, as the person next to me handed me the brain, I saw a great big Roman numeral X on the brain. And I thought, oh, my God, a miracle. It's right there in front of me, you know. And she must have seen this surprised look on my face because as soon as the, the brain hand got into my hand, she said, now, uh, Dr. Ruby will show us where the origins of the vagus nerve is and the, and the, and the, and the pathway of the nerve. Uh, and you'll, but you'll notice that on this brain, the Roman numerals, do not correspond to the cranial nerves. They are correspond to other structures. And I thought, oh, geez, you know, so, so I was lost. Um, and then the other thing she would do in the course uh, is sometimes like at the end of the day before we disperse, she would uh, 
put somebody, one of us on the table and demonstrate some of the things that she was teaching during the day. And uh, actually, I think it was might have been in the same course. It was I know it was the first or second course that I went out there. <clears throat> and it was a Monday through Friday course. I flew to San Diego on Sunday and I woke up Sunday morning and I had a little bit of a fever and I had a sore throat. And I thought, oh, geez, I'm getting like a head cold or an upper respiratory thing. And my history is I thought that I know what this is going to be. I'm going to feel lousy for a couple of three days and have a sore, scratchy throat. And then I'm going to start having a runny nose and decongesting. And by the time the course is over, I'll feel better, you know, but I'm not going to feel great during the week. So on that Monday, about four o'clock in the afternoon, she said, well, before we leave, I want to show you some of these things. And she said, I want to have someone on the table. Well, the group looked at me and I guess they chose me to go on the table because they said, uh, you should treat, uh, Dr. Freiman, you should treat Ruby because he looks like he's probably not going to make it through the night. <laughs> you know, So, <laughs> so she, she put me on the table and she treated me. And I don't remember what all she did, but uh, she did this whole cranial treatment on me. And uh, so I left the office and a couple hours later, my wife and I were sitting in a restaurant in La Jolla uh, to order dinner. And I, it was about seven o'clock or 7.30. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know, I really feel kind of a lot better. You know, it's pretty quick. I'd never gotten over something like this, um, this quick. And by the next day I felt perfect, you know. So it's kind of a case study, you know, it's kind of an N of one. So I don't know how much of a scientific study that was, but I'd never got, I've had those symptoms several times prior to that. And I knew it was kind of a week long thing to gradually overcome it. But, you know, a little more than 24 to 36 hours after I got it, I was feeling pretty perfect. And the only thing different was I had this osteopathic treatment from Dr. Freiman. (laughs) So, I thought, wow, maybe this stuff even works, you know. So, um, <laughs> so she she, uh, she 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 was she was a you know she was a great teacher. She she was very thorough and very particular about everything. So if you were in a course with her, she really she really worked with you very hard to make sure you got all the details right of things, you know, which I always appreciated, um, and. Uh, so to a lot of people, she seemed intimidating and um, me included, I guess, to some extent. But after a while, stop being intimidated and realize she's just a, a, a tough teacher. And I, I didn't mind the challenge, you know, things. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure she was equally as. Difficult. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She had we we wondered even up to the time that she passed away, you wondered where she got her, her, her energy from. She was, I mean, she was well into her eighties and, 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 and still getting on airplanes and flying to Europe and, uh, you know, d- really? doing courses and, you know, <laughs> things like this. She just never seemed to tire. We used to wonder, we even asked her like, where's the cord? Like where, what, what the heck are you plugged into? Where's the energy source? You know, <laughs> But, uh, and I and I think it was partly her her just her passion, you know, her her drive for osteopathy, and and uh, she was a she was a religious lady, uh, and I think there was a sort of a divine connection for her there that supported what she felt was her work, you know. So she that's I think where her where her you know passion and motivation came from from those sources, I would guess. Um, so she didn't. Uh, 
she didn't ever seem to be tired, you know, and even when she seemed to be tired, it didn't bother her. She just kept going on. Impressive. Wish I would have had the opportunity and speak to her, but I appreciate you sharing the stories. I'm sorry, go ahead. You were going to share something else. Oh, that's right. I was going to say she, she, uh, and she, she was, um, that almost sounds a little bit too, too strict, but she used to sort of joke at times when she'd come in. I remember being around when it was her birthday and the people in the office had a little birthday cake and stuff. And she liked it and she was very grateful for it, but she would clearly remind us, you know, like she would say, well, you know, we should celebrate accomplishments, not birthdays. And you know, and her idea was like, well, birthday is great. I appreciate it, but I didn't have anything to do with that. You know, <laughs> like, why should I be honored for <laughs> something? That, you know? So, so she was kind of funny that way with different things. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely. She was driven. another one. I was, I had, I had read some of her papers uh, uh, prior to even going to convocation the first time where I heard her speak a few times and, and I was really impressed with her writing and her her grasp of osteopathic philosophy and principles, you know. And uh, so I uh, I was really excited to be able to go out and uh, take a course with her. And I I had I don't know a handful or so courses during that time. And then um, since I've been out here, I was teaching down there with her uh, cranial course and a few other courses over the years, and still going down there and doing that. So. I was grateful to be able to, you know, physically be around her uh, at least once or twice a year for something like that for, you know, 20 some odd years. You know, so. Yeah. Her, her desire to treat children, where did that come from? I think, I think two places. I, I never heard it. I never heard her say this in so many words, but, you know, um, people might not know. And it's, it's in some of her articles and stuff. She, her, her first child was a, was a, you know, when she had her first child, a, a, a boy, uh, her child died, I think, at only within like the first four to six months of life or something like that, and basically died from a failure to, tr to, to thrive, I think, you know, it sounded like, you know, right. couldn't eat, couldn't, couldn't gain weight, couldn't, gradually just deteriorated, and, and, and nobody knew what to do for him. Um, and then, Shortly after that, she took her uh, first course with Dr. Sutherland. She was introduced to the cranial concept, and uh, she learned from him all these things that you could do for infants, you know, and all the, all the, uh, now, I never heard her talk about having a traumatic labor or delivery or anything like that, so I don't know, but she obviously would have learned about treating occipital condyles and plagiocephaly and other things that newborns might have. And I think the impression on her was that she felt that she could have saved her baby if she had only known these things, you know. Um, and so I think that was uh, something that drove her to want to um, provide that kind of treatment for children. And I remember her telling me one time that the way she put it was she said, uh, she told me, she said, she said, when I came to La Jolla in 1949, she said, people told me that. La Jolla is the town of old people and their parents. <laughs> so and she would joke about, she had a lot of older people in her practice. And she had mentioned particularly one, one patient that she had was in her, uh, like in her seventies, who was being cared for by her mother, who was in her nineties, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, 
And what she said was after a while, she said that the thing that hit her was uh, not that she stopped seeing adults right away like that, but it, it struck her that once she knew this cranial stuff and what she could do for newborns and infants with that, she felt like, you know, if I'm really going to be applying osteopathy, she said, I need to get literally get the, my hands on and treat these, these babies and children, not wait until they get to be older children and adults and develop problems. She said, what, how many, how many things could I avoid or prevent if I could treat them right from the beginning, you know? And so that kind of drove her to change her practice around to try and try and attract to herself, the newborns and the infants, you know, so that she could give them ongoing care right from, from birth, you know, and uh, correct structural problems and all these things that could disturb functions like that, you know? So I think her personal experience with her first child and, and then her idea that, that um, um, you know, she could treat adults, but adults tend to have established problems and you don't, you know, sometimes you don't make as much progress as you'd like with them, but maybe you could avoid a lot of them if you could start with the, the children, you know, right from the time when they were born. And that was part of what drove her, I think. Yeah, I can see that. Thanks for sharing that story and Dr. Ruby. So uh, oh, you're welcome. Yeah. We're at uh, 70. What uh, are there <laughs> any other stories, any other principles, anything else that you would like to share? Well, um, I think I put it, I would put it this way, I guess. Um, I know you say, that, you know, your, your podcast is, you know, a good uh, part of your podcast is intended for the, for the osteopathic medical students to, to get some understanding of this, this sort of side of practice and these experiences and things like that. And uh, I think I'll, I'll just, uh, you know, I'm in no rush, but I'll, I'll tell you one little quick patient story here that um, I like to tell to the students when we're treating, when we're teaching cranial, because cranial of all the techniques, as you know, can be some of the more difficult ones for the students to get a hold of and sometimes difficult to understand. Um, <clears throat> but I think it points to osteopathy in general. Uh, and the story I'll tell is when I was, when I was at Michigan State, um, Dr. Greenman, who was another mentor in, in my life there, um, was at the stage in his career when he would be at the university for nine months out of the year. And then for three months, usually during the winter, he lived in Arizona. And uh, when he was away from the clinic, I would see um, good number of his patients uh, while he was gone. And um, a lady came in one time for treatment who had been a woman that Dr. Greenman had been treating for some years before I got uh, to Michigan State. And she apparently had uh, some problem early on and she had a rather severe chronic pain problem. And he was able to get her um, from basically being um, not able to do much of anything to at least being able to be up and around and uh, do her housework and, you know, go out, do the shopping and things like that. So she had a pain syndrome that at this point seemed like a chronic kind of myo, kind of uh, fibromyalgia, but uh, apparently she was really quite dysfunctional in the beginning. So anyway, she came in for treatment one time while I was there and I got done with her. And, and when I was done, she asked me, she said, do you think that you could see my husband, if he could come in and see you. And I said, sure, I guess, you know, I said, well, what, why, what's the problem? And she said, well, he has these um, headaches, 
he's been having, he's had these headaches and he's been having them for years and he's been to a lot of doctors and he's never been able to get rid of them. So I said, well, okay. And I told her, I said, well, uh, yeah, I'm happy to see him. I said, it's always worth taking a look. I said, sometimes when people have had something for a long time like that, it's possible that we may not be able to get everything fixed up. Uh, but nevertheless, we don't know unless we look. So he came in to see me and um, I remember going through a rather large chart, chart, but the way he described it to me was he, this was around 19, I'm going to guess around 1996 or seven. And uh, he said, I said, well, just tell me when you got these headaches. And he said, well, he said in 1962, <laughs> he said, I woke up about 2.30 in the morning one time and I had this pain that started and he pointed to the left of his uh, nose right around his maxilla there. He said it started there and it went straight back through his head, through the back of his head. He said it was the worst headache of my life. And uh, we all know what that might mean, but uh, I thought, well, that was 32 years ago, I think now. And so I think I'm safe uh, <laughs> right now. Uh, and he said it, the pain never went away. And since that time, he went to the Diamond Headache Clinic in Chicago. He'd been to Cleveland Clinic. He'd been to U of M. He'd been everywhere. And uh, doctors had him on pain medication, starting with ibuprofen and working up to, I think, Neurontin or something like that. And um, he said none of the pain meds uh, really ever took care of the pain. They make it kind of better, you know, but when the pain medicine wears off, the pain comes back. And um, <clears throat> And the last doctor, some years before this visit that I'm seeing him, who had prescribed him medicine, retired or left the state. And at that point, he just quit going to doctors because he said none of the none of the meds are any better than the others, and nobody knows what to do. And he said, he said, and the way it worked for him is he worked in the auto industry over near Detroit somewhere. And he he says. I come home at the end of my shift. He said, if the pain isn't really too bad, sometimes my wife and I will go out real quick and just get something to eat for dinner. And then I'll come back. But either, either if not, I just stay home and we eat something real quick. And he says, then I go to bed. And he said, ever since that pain started, he said, I, he said, I haven't slept through the night in 32 years. He said, I wake up every 25 minutes or so during the night because of the pain. So my sleep is always broken up. Um, so he goes to work, he comes home, he grabs something to eat, he goes to bed, tries to sleep as much as possible. So he's been doing this for 32 years. So I treated him the first time, and, uh, and I don't remember all the details, but I know I did a little bit of cranial work on him. I treated his neck and his upper back and a few other areas. He came back the following week, and he, he didn't feel too much better. And I, I recalled something in his chart where somebody made a comment about the possibility of cluster headaches. And I thought, oh, I don't know. So I asked him if his, when he gets the pain, if it gets worse, does, does, does do your eyes water? Do you, you know, does your nose run? And he said, oh, I don't know, maybe a little. So it didn't sound real effective. But then I thought about the sphenopalatine ganglion. So I went in there with my little finger and I felt that, that area and it was excruciatingly painful for him. And so I did this kind of long but gentle treatment on it. And I said, well, let me see you next week. And so he came in the following week and I said, well, how are you doing? And he said, well, he said, I got to tell you, when after, after I left here last week, he said, I've only had like 
one or two little headaches is what he called them. And went, I haven't slept through the night in 32 years. You know, I thought, well, good. So I went in to feel that area again, and it was pretty tender, but it was better. So I decongested it again and treated some other cranial things. I don't remember what exactly they were, but he came back in a week or so later, and I said, well, how are you doing? He said, I'm pretty good. You know, I don't feel bad. I said, well, let me see you in a couple of weeks or so. So he came in in a couple of weeks. I said, how are you doing? He said, fine, I'm doing fine. So I said, all right, let me come back in about a month. I said, if you get worse, call me. But I said, let's just make sure. So he came back about a month later, and I said, how are you? And he said, I'm fine. He said, I don't have any pain. I don't have any... So he's, he's good, you know. And uh, I didn't see him for till about another three years or so later. He showed up in the clinic one afternoon and I said, oh, what's going on? And he said, oh, I'm feeling a little painful up. And he was pointing to that same area. And he said, it's okay. But he said, it feels a little sore. And I thought I'd come in. So I checked him over. I treated him. I felt that sphenopalatine ganglion. And it was a little tender, but it wasn't bad. I decongested it. And I said, let me see you in a week or so. He came in and I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> and I never saw him since, you know. And so... To me, it's, you know, I mean, I've had some of these dramatic cases like this, but I remember this guy in part number one because it was just so good to get this guy over this pain that he had so much that was affecting him. Secondly, uh, he had such relief from this that he and his wife went on a vacation. They went on a cruise. They hadn't been out of the house in 32 years because of his problem. He had a brother that was dying in Pennsylvania about a six-hour drive away. And, and he was able to go see his brother before he passed away, you know, and it struck me. And so I, I tell the students, I say, you know, it's, it's, it's not the cranial and it, the, the story is not to make me look like some kind of a hero to you, but I'm saying this is a technique that you do with your little finger, you know, <laughs> it's like, uh, and I said, gosh, you know, I, I changed his life, you know, with this. Not only his life, but his wife's life. They were both like housebound because of this thing. So I said, you know, when you begin, when you get to be a practicing DO, you know, if if your forte is not OMT or if you're not that interested in it, you know, when you see people look like this, you know, it's just possible that for the sake of a, a little treatment that you can do with one finger that I could show almost anybody off the street how to do, <laughs> you know. You can have this kind of a dramatic effect, not only on the patient's life, but on some people around him. I said, that's pretty powerful as a physician. So I said, you know, you're going to be a DO. Use your hands. Uh, think about these things. And if it's really not something you want to do, man, it's it's worth the patient. Send them somewhere they can get a treatment or two. You know, you never know what you're going to get out of these people, you know. And how many people are out there walking around with something like this that for the sake of a an OMT treatment using techniques that most first and second year students know how to do, uh, you can have this kind of dramatic effect, you know? So think about the, 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 the power, the position that you have as a physician to, to uh, work this kind of positive effect on people's lives in your practice. So that's what I want students to know is like, you know, Pay attention to your schooling and pay attention to your OPMP training. Uh, please use it. And if you're not going to use it yourself, um, 
if they remotely look like they could use a treatment, have somebody treat them, you know, because you yeah. just, you don't know what you're going to get, you know. <laughs> so That's right. Yeah. What What do you think was triggering his phenopalagine ganglia to be irritated? Well, I, you know, I don't know. And I wish, you know, I wish I would have been there longer to, and, and to, to, to get more out of him about that because the way he described it was he just, he woke up in the middle of the night from it. You know, now I talked to him, um, you know, I took a, a history out of him and I can tell you that first time I saw him, you know, I treated his cranium. I don't remember all the techniques. It was a long time ago um, and, or the dysfunctions, but I know I treated his cervical spine and his thoracic spine. And I, I know among other things, I treated him with some high velocity in those regions. But the way he described the onset was he said he woke up in the middle of the night, like 2 or 2.30 in the morning with that pain, and it didn't leave him. Uh, now, something had to happen to put him in a position to have something there that was restricted to start the pain in the first place. And I, I do remember from the first treatment that I treated some restrictions in his cervical spine. And I remember, first of all, I asked him, some very detailed questions about injuries, you know? And I said, look, did you, were you injured? Did anything happen to you? Did you have any, you know, no, he said he, he didn't, didn't have anything. Now, this is like, you know, 30 years, 32 years after the onset of this thing. So does he remember every detail? And, you know, he could have had something even way before then that set him up for this to happen down the road. Um, and I remember in that first treatment, uh, he's, I said, anything, did you ever fall? Did you fall off a horse? Did you get hit by an oil truck? Did anything happen to you? You know, nope, nothing. And then as soon as I did a high velocity maneuver on his cervical spine, he said, well, that feels good. He said, you know, he said, I broke my neck one time. <laughs> <laughs> I said, really? I said, <laughs> Are you okay? Shit. I said, because I may have broken it again just now. <laughs> so, I don't know. So, uh, so, so that remind that made me think like, well, he still didn't remember anything, but I thought, well, but if you broke your neck somewhere along the line, when was that? You know, I mean, it could have been years before you had this pain started. You, you could walk around with a somatic dysfunction for a long time before you get enough allostatic load on your life that something starts to hurt, you know, maybe. So it doesn't seem connected, you know, um, so I don't know. We never did uh, solve that. All, all I know is he got like just better. He was just better, you know. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've had a really few dramatic cases like that, you know, and I, and 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 I've been impressed with, you know, the dramatic result that you can get, and 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 I've been impressed with the dramatic result that I got with relatively straightforward, simple techniques. There was no magic, complex technique. Uh, they were typical. It could be soft tissue, articulatory, you know, a little high velocity maneuver or muscle energy maneuver, things that students learn all the time. And and just, and then maybe it goes back to what we were saying very early about students working on each other in the, in the OMM lab. You know, when they're working on each other in the lab and they're all pretty healthy and don't have many complaints, it's hard for them to wonder whether they're doing anything or not, you know. Uh, but when you see a patient with this kind of problem and you do, a fairly straightforward, simple treatment on them, and they get this kind of dramatic results. Well, this is what happens when you get real patients with, you know, real somatic dysfunctions, you know, versus practice sessions. 
That's right. Yeah. And that's the part that the, the students need these stories and they need those clinical experiences or at least be able to see some of them so that they'll know that they can trust in using these processes and it's going to be worth their while to know them, you know. So absolutely. Yeah. And for those who- and you know, if you if you if you're in a smaller even I don't know if you even have to be in a small town, you can be in the city, but you get one or two cases like that, then you get some good result on them. And I'll tell you, um, when you're out there competing with all the other doctors in your area and you're doing something like that that nobody else can do, uh, you're not gonna have to worry about a patient load in your office. <laughs> you yeah. You'll have a waiting list. <laughs> so so true. Yeah, great story. <laughs> Um, before we sign up, any sure. plugs you'd like to make? I know you talked about the the Osteopathic Center of San Diego, some CME <laughs> there. Yeah, you want to mention specifically and um, well, we have um, we we have some things coming up. Um, there's um, um, on the 29th of this month in July, it's a Saturday, uh, but it's going to be from uh, nine to 1230 here. We're doing a webinar about, uh, uh, osteopathic, uh, principles and treatments and COVID. Um, and, um, we did a webinar about that early on during the pandemic and we got a pretty good response to people, you know, about talking about osteopathic medicine and, like, uh, you know, the accomplishments that the DOs had in the 1918 influenza pandemic compared to other medical treatments. And so trying to get people prepped for the pandemic and what DOs might be able to offer and what treatments. Uh, this is a kind of a follow-up webinar that we're going to talk about. Well, what have, what, have we, what have we learned through this pandemic so far now that things are kind of calming down at least a little bit? And, uh, what research might have been done and uh, I've got some speakers that are going to be talking about their office-based treatments of some patients and uh, people that have had hospital uh, COVID patients that they've had a chance to treat. And what are we going to do about, uh, or what can we do about patients with long COVID, things like that. So it's a little bit of a follow-up on that. Um, it's a live webinar. Um, and I would suggest that if people be, uh, particularly students, if there's students listening to this, um, and uh, I won't stick my neck out too far, but if they get interested and want to register for it, uh, they could contact them. Um, they could register, but you could contact them and ask because they will uh, not uncommonly uh, give uh, pretty good discounts or even freebies to students, you know, for these seminars and things like that. So it might be of interest to students and residents in that regard. Um, so we have that coming at the end of the month. Uh, another colleague of mine and I out here are going to try to do a, a one-day workshop. It's, it's going to be live, though, out in San Diego um, at the center on uh, some approaches to foot and ankle uh, problems using structural diagnosis and manipulation, amongst other things. And we're going to focus on um, ankle sprain and plantar fasciitis. Um, and uh, some, we're going to be using some techniques that we both learned from a podiatrist uh, this podiatrist worked f with a podiatrist who had worked with A.T. Still. <laughs> so really? we have a connection between Still and podiatry here with some interesting techniques that we're going to show in there. And I think, I don't know if we'll be able to record that or not. I can't remember if we have it set up to record. Because if they do it, then they'll have an on-demand. Uh, and people can look at actually at the website. There are some on-demand courses now and, and uh, 
so that people don't necessarily have to travel for some of the things we've already done. And like I say, if you're, if you're, podcast is going out, particularly to students and other residents and stuff, uh, they're pretty good at the center about uh, giving reduced fees or even some free tickets to these things sometimes. So yeah. in the in the fall, in September, it's another hard time in the fall, but we're going to be doing our basic cranial course early in September. And um, I'm not sure exactly when, but we're also going to be doing a three-day course. Uh, I don't know that the dates are set yet, but somewhere down hopefully in the not too distant future, you're going to do a three-day course on cranial nerves um, and osteopathic treatments. So, and, uh, so great. those are some things that are coming up there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's wonderful. Dr. Ruby, if any of listeners would like to reach out to you, may I include your email in the show notes? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's fine. That's no problem. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time and sharing your story and, what you've learned throughout your career. I really appreciated the uh, stories about Ed Stiles and Dr. Greenman and, you know, especially about uh, Dr. Fryman. Didn't know much. Oh about yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So appreciate that. And I think the listeners will appreciate that. Uh, his, the history of OMM. So yeah, thanks so much. I'm glad, I'm, again, glad, glad to do it. I appreciated the invitation and, um, uh, be glad to talk to you anytime about anything if you want to in the future. So yeah. it's fine. So. Uh, we'll have to pick a topic and record episode two. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We could do that. <laughs> There's another volume in me somewhere. I <laughs> 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 we'll have to bring uh, Justine on as a co-host. I tried to get her this time, but she was a little busy. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Okay. Well, Dr. Ruby, you have a wonderful evening. Thanks again. And we'll talk. Okay. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate everything. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. So long. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. If you would like to reach out to Dr. Ruby, you can find his email in the show notes. If you'd like to come on the podcast and share your story, please reach out at the ONMM podcast at gmail.com and stay tuned for the next episode.